Once again, from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 398 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're doing your questions, your comments, and things that you send to me and say, hey, check this story out, check this video out, what have you, what do you think of it? So it's all going to be things like that, typical Monday show. Uh, before I do that, though, let's get into the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Ready-Made Resources. I want to have a special announcement today. Ready-Made Resources was running a 25% off all Mountain House items until the 15th of March sale. Uh, this is the last day of that sale. So if I were you and I wanted to add any, any amount at all to my Mountain House stock, today would be a good day to get by Ready-Made Resources and knock that out. The next sponsor of the day today is Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth has really cool tactical type, type stuff. Uh, everything from gear packs to knives, you name it. Check out Sawtooth Tactical. And uh, what I've heard is that just about every time you order something from them, they tend to have little extra goodies that just kind of show up. Uh, so uh, let them know when you order that you heard about them on TSP. Uh, with that, let's move on from there. Next up, um, I want to ask you guys to make sure that if you haven't been by the Survival Podcast Gear Shop to check out the shirts, the hats, the patches, the other cool stuff we have, you take a stop by there today. And uh, the Rockwells put a lot of work into putting the gear shop together, and they, they do that. And I want you guys to understand the gear shop is something that I provide to the audience so they can have this stuff because it was asked for to the, to the Rockwells, to Tiffany and Rich. It is, their, it is a business venture for them. I've pretty much given them that uh, with, a, with a small piece of it just so I control the quality. Other than that, it's their operation. So help support them in the efforts that they've made because they've worked really hard, not just with the gear shop, but on the forum to help make TSP into not only a great uh, podcast but a great community. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, 20 members-only free videos. And i got a big announcement about the Members Brigade today. New discount uh, vendor, supporting partner for the Members Brigade. I should have them added sometime today. i got a late start today, just getting back from Arkansas and all. But if they're not added today, they will be added tomorrow, and it is Honeyville Grains. Honeyville is awesome. Uh, they are one of the best places, to, especially to get things like powdered cheese, powdered milk, powdered eggs, things like that, and a ton of other stuff. They are one of the best suppliers of, of that type of, uh, of storage prep. Absolutely phenomenal. Dirt cheap shipping. It's like five-something to, to ship one can or a hundred cans. The shipping is the same no matter what. And MSB members, going forward, get 10% off additionally on all Honeyville grain orders. That's a big deal. So with that, um, you know, i got to tell you, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. But that alone, if you're seriously a prepper and you're purchasing items like this, will pay itself back to you easily every year with that one benefit alone. And remember, there's 15 other vendors with discounts. i got some real cool stuff coming, too. Um, 
Shelf Reliance, who's also a supporting vendor of the MSB with a 7% discount, sent me a Harvest 72 shelf to do a review of. We did that review up in Arkansas. I don't want to put the shelf together here because uh, we're going to move up there in a few months anyway. So we took it up there with us on our vacation, did a little video review of it, so that's coming. Uh, and uh, remember, they give MSB members a 7% discount. So we got real cool stuff coming uh, for you with video and some other things that are coming out soon. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and start taking your questions. And the uh, first question that I have today is, so this question is really more of uh, an article that this uh, gentleman sent me. This is from a guy named Eric, and that's all we'll call him here. I don't like to give out people's full names unless they like that uh, sort of thing and tell me to. Um, but uh, Eric sent me an article uh, from the Associated Press that's featured on Yahoo News, and it says Social Security is going to start cashing in Uncle Sam's IOUs. He wanted me to tell you what I think the ramifications of this are and what it really means. Let me say that I think for, let's say, the next five years, it doesn't really mean anything because over the next five years, we're talking billions of dollars, and our government, uh, when it needs a few billion dollars, is able to, to, to raise that fairly easily by doing something like, I don't know, increasing the, the, the tax on pipe tobacco by 700%. Uh, a billion may seem like a lot to you and me, but a billion to our government is, you know, that's, that's enough to fly the Congress around for a year paying their jet fuel and, and things like that and the aircraft maintenance. So I, I think for the next four or five years, it won't mean anything. I think there will be some honest politicians, a few of them uh, out there, saying, hey, this is bad. This is really, really bad. We need to do something about this. It's going to get worse. And I think most of them will stick their fingers in their ear and go, la, 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 like the ass clowns that they are, and will keep telling you there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to see here, folks. Let's just move on. Uh, they've been saying that Social Security is going to go broke for years, and it hasn't, and it's been a lie, and it's just the right trying to get rid of this great program for old people. Let me tell you what's really going on. You can read the entire article if you want to know more. For years and years and years, um, since Ronald Reagan raised the tax on Social Security immensely uh, back in 82, Social Security has taken in more money every year than it has paid out. Billions more. Billions and billions and billions more. It has not been an insolvent program. It has been a program that is at least for the foreseeable future, sustainable. And then the biggest two-letter word in the English language. If the money taken in was actually used for programs for Social Security. But it has not been. It has been pilfered left and right, taken by the federal government, and used for other programs, quote-unquote. Uh, other programs like, I don't know, the stimulus bill. The bailout, so both the ass clown uh, presently and the former ass clown Bush get blame for things like that. Where do you think the money that we, ha we spend comes from? The federal income tax, folks, doesn't pay for a damn thing anymore. The federal income tax, the money you pay in income tax, that you think helps, that you're patriotic because it helps provide all the, pro it, doesn't, it doesn't do jack crap anymore, folks. It pays the interest on the debt. That's about it. That's really about it. It pays the interest on the debt. So the government has been robbing and looting Social Security. Remember, it's the biggest revenue source the government has. Why? Because you pay about 7%. Your employer pays about 7%. There's no refunds or deductions or anything like that. 
uh, up up to the first hundred and fourteen thousand dollars earned or something like that. So most Americans pay fourteen percent of their income in Social Security. Period. A hundred percent is taxed, and they say it's not a it's a tax, right? It's your investment in your future um, because you're paying the other the other seven percent that your employer matches, whether you know that or not. So in other words, if I employ you and you make um, I don't know a thousand dollars. And you look at it and you go, oh, look, they took, you know, what, $70 in Social Security taxes from me, 7%. You say, okay, well, that's $70 for my future out of 1000 That's fine. It's actually $140. It's actually $140 because I match it. So all you think with all that money, there'd be no reason that we can't keep giving old people their check that lets them live at the poverty level and performs worse than every other investment on demand. But what does the government do when they have a stockpile of money? They spend it. And every time they take money into the Social Security office and there's um, extra money, the government says, we can't let it just sit around. We have to put it to work for the people. And they take it and they spend it on other social programs. This is what's really happened to Social Security. It's what was always going to happen to Social Security. It's not like somebody ruined FDR's great dream. As soon as FDR started the program, as soon as there was a surplus, it was being spent. And it's always been spent, and it always will be spent. So what are the ramifications? It's not just that eventually Social Security must become insolvent and go broke. Now that the government's appetite for spending has exceeded its ability to pilfer the Social Security Fund. All that money that they've been stealing every year won't be there anymore. So it's not just Social Security that's going to take the hit. It's the entire government budget. It's like they're losing an income stream, which, trust me, it's not an income stream. It's our investment in our futures, but they see it as an income stream. So my real prediction for what the ramifications, gloom and doom, you know, the whole system falls apart, spirals to the ground, no, more taxes. That's my prediction. That will be the ramifications of Social Security going broke. Since Social Security has been pilfered and they have to cash in their IOUs, the government doesn't have the money to give them the money back, we have to raise taxes. We have to raise taxes everywhere to cover the money we can't steal from Social Security anymore, and we're going to have to raise Social Security taxes. So while the ass clown ran on a platform that nobody that makes under $150,000 will have a tax increase, first of all, you already have uh, in, in quite a few ways, but what you're going to see is what they'll do, they'll raise the cap on Social Security taxation. Right now, once you go over, I think, 114, I don't know what it is, but once you go over a certain amount of income, you stop paying Social Security. So they'll raise that cap. They'll probably try to tick in a percent or two slowly over time, the way Reagan did, even though he was supposedly the tax cutter. Um, and they will find any place and every place that they can afford to raise taxes. This is why cap and trade will come back with a vengeance. It's a massive tax. Uh, and they'll try to get that through as a way to save themselves, as a way to restart the casino. So those are the real ramifications and probably not what you're going to hear from conventional talk radio. Those of you that say that when I talk about current events, you can get that from Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity. It's not so much that Social Security is going to be threatened. It's that we're all going to get a tax increase. And every single government program out there, the entire budget is threatened by this. Because not only is Social Security going into the state where it's going to say, Hey, federal government, I need some of those IOUs cashed in. But the government can't go get more money from Social Security. Think about it this way. You have this rich uncle, right? And uh, you go to him every month, and he gives you $100,000 to maintain this really lavish lifestyle, and you just write a little IOU and hand it to him for $100,000. 
and someday you'll pay it back. But in a, in a, at a point in time where you are in crisis, all of your business ventures have failed, uh, you're in deep decline, you're deeply in debt beyond the money that you owe your rich uncle, he says, hey, man, you know what? I need some of that money back. Not a lot of it, just a couple hundred thousand. And I'm going to need like 400000 next year, uh, month, and I'm going to need like 800000 a month after that. But that's okay. I've been giving you this money for years, so it won't be any problem to pay it back, right? But you don't have the money. So now you're in deeper shit, because not only does your rich uncle need the money back, but you don't have the money from your rich uncle to keep going forward with. That's exactly what's happened to Social Security. It is not sustainable the way that it's been run. Is Social Security a sustainable concept? If we took all the money that came in, put it into a place, put it into a position where that it earned a little bit of interest and was safe and, you know, the quote Al Gore was in a lockbox, um, sort of, maybe, kind of. The only real way to run a program like Social Security is to let people control it themselves and invest their money where they see fit. Uh, that's really the only way to do it, and we don't need a government program to do that. So what needs to happen to Social Security? The people that have been in the system for a very long time, we've made a promise to, we need to figure out how to keep that promise. As we come back into people in their 40s, we need to wean them off of it. People in their 30s and younger, including me, should get no Social Security. We should be allowed out of the system over the next 10 to 15 years, uh, and we should be scaled back in how much we have to contribute, and we should be able to take that money and redirect it and provide for our own retirement because this program cannot be sustained by a government because the government will always pilfer uh, any money that ever comes up. Even if they have a lockbox, they'll come up with a new way to do it. Uh, let's take another question. So the next question comes from a guy named Thad. Here's what Thad says. I know that one should save money for a car. Um, interest uh, instead of paying over time. But there's a lot of dealers right now offering 0% financing. Toyota is offering 0% over 60 months. Would you still advise against buying over time in these situations? Are there going to be additional financing fees after the deal is made? It seems to me that one would be better off putting the money in a secure investment, like 20% of the total each a year, one-year, two-year, three-year, and four-year CD, while reserving 20% in cash to make the first-year payments. Do you have any insight into the situation? Okay, Thad, let me first clear the air on my thoughts on borrowing money to buy a car. I am anti-debt. Uh, I think anybody who listens to the show knows this. However, I am not totally opposed to borrowing money to buy a car. I am okay with it if you need to. If you do not have cash or if you'd like to keep some cash in reserve, if you were going to buy a $30,000 car, you said, Jack, I got $30,000 in savings, but that's all the cash reserves I have, and I want this car, and I think it makes sense for my life, and I am a free American, and I want to buy this car. So what I'm going to do is put $15,000 down on the car, finance $15,000, pay it off in two and a half or three years or something like that. Instead of the five that I can finance it at, I'm going to finance it at five to create a, 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 a fallback condition for myself in case I ever end up in, a tr in, pr in problems. Uh, but this is what I'm going to do. I would say I have no problem with that whatsoever. None. And I think you're going to get a hell of a deal on the car with that kind of a down payment because they're going to know that you're serious. Plain and simple. Um, when it comes to 0% financing, I'm not a fan of those deals, and I'll tell you why. Um, if you go and you look at 0% financing on a vehicle, you will often find that if you take the same vehicle and you get a, a standard financing plan and a 0% financing plan, you actually take the total of the payments and multiply them over the term of the loan, that you're going to come out to the exact same, or sometimes you'll actually pay more with the uh, – 
with the 0% supposed deal. Here's why. It's really 0% financing in most situations. Sometimes there's a little finance fee in there or some bull crap that they lie about, but it's generally very small, under 1%, uh, and, and a lot of times it's not even there. What they do is they don't discount the car at all when they do a 0% financing deal. You're going to pay sticker or damn close to sticker. If you walk in there with cash, you're going to be able to negotiate a hell of a deal right now. So the reason I'm not a big fan of the 0% is because it's paint. It's an illusion. So I think if you're going to buy a car, you should go in and you should get the cash price on the car. You should get the standard financing price on the car. And you should get any kind of 0% or special deals or rebates. You should get as many different pricing uh, ways to look at that car as possible. And then you should make the decision that best fits your budget. Now, this is what I will say about debt on a car. I said I'm okay with debt on a car. Let's say you drive quite a distance to work, more than 25 miles in each direction. Uh, you go to work every day, and you travel often for other reasons. You need a good, fuel-efficient, dependable car uh, that's not going to break down on you with a warranty on it. And you go out and you buy a car, sub $30,000, and you have a solid income you know, level. If you're buying a $30,000 car, you better have an income of at least eighty grand, at least. And if you don't, you need to scale back your – if you have an, in, an income of 50, you need to be looking at cars in the $20,000 price point. And you say that doesn't leave me a lot to choose from. Well, you can either buy a car that's one or two years old that used to be $30,000. You can buy a new uh, car at that entry-level price point. It's sad that that's how expensive cars are today, but that's why I'm okay with some debt on them. What I'm not okay with is you and your spouse having a combined household income of, let's say, $80,000, and you go out and buy two thirty dollars or two $40,000 vehicles. You can buy a house right now for $80,000. And if you could pay off two, 80, two, two vehicles worth eighty grand in five years, then you could pay off a house worth eighty grand in five years. Or to put it another way, you could pay off a house worth $160,000 in ten years. And it's a better use of your money. You'd be better off driving older cars. But, again, you have to make your own decisions. I bought a new car. Um, shortly after, I, I ended up taking a position, not the one I had in Frisco, but one up in a place called Allen, which is even a further drive. I bought the Jetta Diesel TDI because with that distance, I needed dependability and I needed fuel efficiency. So I made a decision at that point to buy a car, and I did finance it. I financed it for five years. I paid it off in three that's my recommendation if you're going to finance a car. If you have the money to buy the car and spending the money to buy the car won't take your cash reserves to zero, go in there and negotiate for cash. Beat the hell out of them, and the first time they tell you they've given you their best price, hand them a piece of paper or a business card, you know, some with your phone number on it, and say, when you can do better, call me. Your phone will ring before you get home right now. That, that's the reality. Uh, or go in there with a real heavy down payment, something in the neighborhood of 10000 on a $30,000 car, they will roll out the red carpet for you. But when they tell you 0% is the way to go, make sure it's true. It's often just a way to get people in there that shouldn't be borrowing money in the first place. All right, let's go on and uh, take another question, because that was a great one. Next question is cool. It's about travel trailers, and I think I mentioned last week I actually just purchased a pretty cool uh, hybrid travel trailer, hybrid being that uh, – the, the trailer itself is a typical travel trailer, not a pop-up, and it actually has an expansion, uh, you know, where the side pop slots out, but the beds pop out like a pop-up, so they don't take up any floor space. So even though it's only uh, a 23-foot trailer, uh, you get the floor space that you would typically get 
from something closer to 30 feet. Uh, because again, the bed's not taking up any space and kind of popping out like a tent. So obviously my, uh, my feelings toward, uh, travel trailers are quite positive. So, uh, what's this question? First, this quick question for you. What are your thoughts on campers and travel trailers as a prep? Seems to me like a good idea. You've got a place to put your food, water, and gear if you need to bug out quickly, and the roads are clear. Also, if you bug in, the camper is at your location. You usually have extra water reserve on them along with a stove, propane, etc. Okay. Everything this guy just said about that is absolutely true. It's why I want to break it apart from his next part of this question. If you have disposable money, you have money you can spend. If you are well prepped, you have good food, you have a means of defense, you've got a garden going, your debt's under control, you have no credit cards, the credit cards are completely paid off, you've paid off your vehicles, and you have no truck payment, no car payment, and you have cash, and you can go out and, 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 and buy a travel trailer for cash, I think they make a lot of sense. If you were going to buy a $20,000 coach and you're going to pay 10000 in cash, finance ten, you know you can pay that in two years without any sweat whatsoever, and all the other debt's gone, again, I'm okay with it. I think they're a great prep. It's why I've bought one. But I also want you to think about the fact that I just bought one. Okay, so I've been doing this show. We're going into, this is going into our second year. In June, it will be two years. I've been doing this show that long. I've been prepping a lot longer than that. We've been working on our debt since basically 9-11 was our wake-up call where we had to start getting control of the situation. Right, so that's 2001, and this is 2010, and I just bought my travel trailer. That should tell you where I think it goes in your hierarchy of priority. It goes toward the end. It's when everything else has been fairly well met, with an exception. Right now, if you have a truck that can pull larger travel trailers, stuff around the 30-foot, 26 to 32 feet, because I looked at buying kind of a used, beat-up one, and they're out there. The small ones are hard to find because it's what everybody with a little half-ton truck wants, right? Uh, but, but those, those kind of that 28, 32-foot range, there are a ton of used ones out there for next to nothing. I'm talking three, $4,000. And if what you basically want is something to pull up, put on your property, and you're not going to travel with it that much, uh, and you can take some time to fix it up. The fact that there is extra propane, the fact that there is extra water, that there is a, a little kind of extra building on your property, absolutely an outstanding thing, and it may be a lot more workable and doable for you. One of the reasons I put off the purchase as long as I did wasn't just the priority thing. It's where am I going to keep it here? So I'm going to have to pay for RV storage now for a few months until we leave. Here's the other side. We plan on using ours a lot. We plan on going to a lot of campgrounds, especially once we move to Arkansas. My wife's not working a full-time job anymore. We're going to be taking off on a lot of long, extra weekends. If you're going to buy a new one of these, don't just buy it as a prep. Buy it as something you're going to use. If you just want it as a prep, definitely, definitely buy used. Um, generally, as I've looked at them, used travel trailers get used hard. And they have a lot of little things that need to be fixed up. But, again, if you're going to park it, that's great. I want you to think about it this way, too. Let's say you have a house, and your primary means of um, your, uh, your heating is from electric. If you have a travel trailer with a little gas furnace in it, and just about all of them do, at least if you lost your power, you have a place you can go out and stay warm. Very easy little place to kind of move into until the power comes back on. Uh, you set it up with a generator. You have limited electrical capacity. It does a lot less draw than your home. If we got into a pandemic situation, you had relatives show up and said, hey, we want to stay with you. We want to get away from things because you're out in the sticks. 
part of my plan with mine is great. Uh, stay up there by the gate. Uh, you can walk down over there to the travel trailer. Uh, we'll bring some food out and set it up for you. If in about two weeks nobody's sick, you can come on in the main house. There's a lot of flexibility there. I really like them. In fact, I'm looking at doing some things in the future I can't reveal yet. They're going to be specific to survivalism and how it relates to RV ownership. I think they're really cool. Now let's go to the second half of this guy's question. Seems like a good idea for me because my wife and little ones age 7 and 4 would be more comfortable than a tent if needed. Most of my use would be 7000 plus. So I think he's saying he's looking at things that would cost more than $7,000 in debt. That wouldn't put me in debt, but it's a lot of money to me. Thoughts, great show. You're on target fire for effect. In this case, your name is Nathan. Um, if it won't put you in debt, I'm okay with it. But I'm going to ask you this question. Will you use it? Will you use it? other than for a bug out and for a prep. If you will not use it, I think the money can be better spent somewhere else. This needs to be a lifestyle choice. We're going to go camping, we're going to go fishing, and if you've never camped in an RV, then this is my advice. Go find somebody that will rent you that $7,000 range, 7 to 10, which I think you're looking at a pop-up there most likely, or a decent small used one or something like that. Go find something equivalent and rent it for a weekend. Rent it for a week and see what it's like. Decide whether this really fits your lifestyle. If it does not, don't buy it because once you drive it home, its value drops off like crazy if it's brand new. It's only, the value is only there to you. And I say this to someone that just bought a brand new one myself. Um, and if anybody wants to know, no, I didn't go into debt for it. I paid cash for it. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the best I can do on that one there, Nathan. If $7,000 is a lot of money to you, it's probably not the time to buy one. Uh, go rent one, see if it fits your lifestyle. And then if it does, then one of the things you can look at, if you have no other debt, this is a big if, no car debt, no truck debt, no house debt, no debt at all, I would be okay with an RV purchased at a 50-50 ratio, 50% down, 50% financing. You have to decide what works for you. You really do. But there's some great deals out there on them right now, folks. Um, I got an RV that sells for about $24,000, and I got it for about nineteen. dollars um, There's a lot of great deals out there. All right, let's go on to, uh, to our next question. Here's a great one because it's more of a, of a lesson than a, a question. It comes from somebody named Pat. Pat says, I appreciate your message, and I've been discussing some of the survival principles at work. My boss told me she had six 25-year-old fruit trees, three kinds of citrus, olive and mango in her backyard, but that Hurricanes Francis and Jean in South Florida destroyed them all. She and her husband were so devastated by the loss since then, four years ago now, they have not planted anything. It's clear that trees alone should not be the extent of a prepper's permaculture because dwarf trees and shrubs probably would have came through the hurricane just fine. I wanted to know your take on that kind of situation and how to advise someone who has faced this kind of loss. Well, first thing is, Having uh, 25 giant trees and nothing else is not permaculture. It is monoculture, a monoculture of large trees of various varieties. If a permaculture situation was in place, what you would have is a natural succession of growth uh, cycle occurring right now. So if this was a permaculture setup in the first place, instead of 25 large trees, there probably would have been, oh, I don't know, 15, maybe 10. And in front of those 10 to 15 trees would have probably been a row of another 10 to 15 semi-dwarfs. And in front of those 10 to 15 semi-dwarfs would have probably been another row of 10 to 15 true 
dwarf trees. And you're right, the hurricane probably wouldn't have damaged them all. In fact, it may have blown the large trees down on top of the smaller trees, and the large trees would have actually maybe protected them. And then you could go in and cut them up, and then you could start regrowing out your canopy layer with large trees in the back and be replacing maybe 10 trees instead of 25. Okay. The, second thing, the second thing I will tell you is to be so devastated as to not plant a new tree doesn't make any sense. And I would advise these people, you've just wasted four years. You just wasted four years. Four years it could have been dedicated to growing new trees. Now, it may make sense to grow dwarfs and semi-dwarfs in a hurricane-prone area. In fact, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I know how devastated I would be if I had something that special. 25-year-old trees that are full size are, are beautiful to behold. And when they're in production, producing things like olives and citrus, man. But the other thing is that you're right. that If you're doing it as a prep, it's not just about having some big fruit trees. That's just one piece. And it's not just about dwarfs and semi-dwarfs. It's about the shrubs, the bushes, and the vines, which generally survive the hurricanes uh, without any real damage whatsoever. In fact, they thrive after a hurricane because new open spaces are created, and they kind of grow. So I want you to think about this. See, hurricanes are a natural force. Things that destroy large trees are natural forces. We have windstorms. We have hailstorms. We have ice storms. There's all types of things that take out some of the biggest trees in the forest. It happens all the time. And what happens is very quickly, because of the way the forest canopy works and because of the nutrient level in the forest floor, because of the constant dropping of leaf litter and other things like that, that that space is quickly filled and trees that, that fill that space, the strongest tree grows very, very quickly and soon you have a new large tree. Or the other trees that were in the area begin to canopy over that open space. And we have all kinds of other like shrubs and new edges created when we lose trees. That's what we need to be creating in our backyard. So it also does need to be shrubs and vines. But it also needs to be an herbaceous layer. It needs to be a root layer. One of the things that you better do if you're planning on your gardening being a good prep is have a good, solid, carbohydrate-based root crop. So potatoes, taro root, I don't care what it is. You've got to have root crops. Why? Because you can completely devastate the surface. And you can still go out and dig up your root crops and at least have some subsistence-level harvest until you're able to reestablish things. Uh, the people that grew potatoes during the Middle Ages, when warfare came and somebody came in and burned the crops to the ground, they were still able to dig up the potato tubers and eat. The people that relied on wheat during the Middle Ages, when they were attacked by an opposing force that burned the crops to the ground, starved. And it is that simple. So... Here's a couple of things I would advise. I would advise them, one, yes, to think about hurricane damage in the future. So you want to use smaller trees because a smaller tree is, is not going to be as damaged by winds. It can, it can bend and yield easier, and it's easier to protect, and it's easier to build windbreaks from. I would also advise them to consider what is the prevailing direction that hurricane force winds come from. And as long as you're not going to end up coming down on a house planting some large windbreak of any kind, like bamboo, in that general uh, you know, area that you would get the strongest winds from, including two sides of both, it's not going to fix, it's not going to prevent the roof from coming off your house. But it may be just enough that if it's a, if it's a glance with a hurricane, it help those larger dwarf trees, semi-dwarf trees, survive. So there's a lot of things that you can do. But we have to be thinking in our permaculture, not just about food yield, but survivability. That's part of the design concepts in the design manual that Bill Mollison wrote. 
in the design manual, you learn how to design against the threat of forest fire, against the threat of tropical storms. So I would advise you or your friends to get a copy of the Permaculture Designer's Manual and read it cover to cover, even though in some parts it's kind of hard to do because it's very technical, and learn from it and stop wasting time because they've wasted four years now. And a few dwarf citrus and a few dwarf uh, other fruit trees could be into production by now. And that's a reality that they have to contend with. But four years from now, there'll be another four years spent, whether they plan anything or not. It's up to them what they do with those four years. Best answer I can give you to that one. But great question, hopefully a great lesson for everybody out there with your permaculture efforts. Realize that just because you have four different fruit trees, it's not permaculture. You have to bring multiple layers into the system and get a system that is self-functioning for it to be permaculture and to mitigate your risk. Okay, here's another question. Um, this comes from a guy named Timothy. It says, I'm looking to buy a rifle. Also looking forward to your ebook. It's coming soon, folks. We're getting real close on it. I haven't shot a rifle in years. It's a, is a 22 a good one to start with? If so, a semi-auto or bolt action. Uh, and could you recommend one over the other? Thank you. Okay, well, Tim, here's the deal. First of all, if you are not yet skilled with a rifle, I would tell you that a 22 rifle may, in fact, be the absolute best place for you to start uh, learning rifle craft with. It has so many advantages to helping you develop good skills on your quest for rifle mastery. Uh, people don't flinch with 22s. They don't close their eyes. They don't jerk triggers. Or if they do, those problems are easily remedied because they're not afraid of muzzle blast and recoil. And even something like a 223 for a lot of new, and I know you guys are out there and you shoot it and you never flinch, and, and it's great, you've been shooting your whole life. A new shooter, even a 223 often has uh, a tendency to create, at least some, not from the recoil, but from muzzle blast and the bang itself, some flinching. 22 with hearing protection, uh, there's almost nothing but a little bit of barrel jump, and it's very easy to develop good habits. So I'm a big fan of that. On my recommendation of a bolt action over a semi-auto, Right now, I'm standing in my office. We just got back from Arkansas. I was doing some shooting up there. I have two 22s sitting in my office. One is a Ruger 10-22, which is a semi-auto, and the other one is a Marlin Model 25. They're sitting right next to each other. I'm looking at them now. They're both mine. So obviously, I think there's a place for both of them. For a first rifle in learning and developing the skill of a rifleman, though, I have to go with a bolt action. And the reason that I say that is I have watched shooters over and over again at a target range, maybe shooting at sporting clays, the things that you shoot with a shotgun, set up on a bank maybe 50 yards away. And they're sitting there shooting, maybe even on a bench rest, and you see bang, miss, bang, miss, bang, hit, bang, miss, bang, hit, bang, miss, bang, hit, bang, miss, bang, hit. And they end up with that empty magazine, 10 rounds fired, 4 clays broken, 5 clays broken. So half of the shots are missed. And they feel all happy about themselves. The reason they feel happy it's because the sequence was short in duration, okay? It was very short in duration. So there was no time for the mind to absorb the negative, the miss, and plenty of time to glorify oneself in the positive, the breaking clay. So as a person developing the skill set, you often mislead yourself with a semi-automatic. As a person learning the skill set, you should be learning breath control, squeeze of the trigger, deliberate shot placement, rock-solid positioning, all the shooting positions. You should be focused on the technique more than the results. 
when you put a semi-auto in somebody's hand, because of the fun factor, which I'll give you is great, the, the focus goes off the technique and onto the result. It's like if you came to me and said, I want to be a professional driver. I want to be able to drive any car, any truck, and I want to be a badass driver. And I was a great driving coach. The first thing I'm going to put you in is something like a beat-up old pickup truck with a, a three-speed on the column or a four on the floor. And I'm going to teach you to drive a stick, and I'm going to give you a car that doesn't perform that well, and I'm going to say, master this. Because if I help you master that, and I put you into something like my Jetta Diesel with traction control and a smooth automatic 6D transmission and all that stuff, you're going to be able to drive the hell out of it. But if I teach you to drive that generally well and put you into that truck, you're not going to be able to drive the truck at all. You don't even know how to drive a stick shift. You focused on results, the high-speed maneuvering versus the technique, mastering how the vehicle actually functions. It's not a direct analogy, but it's the best one that I have for you. In other words, if I take you as a new shooter, and I work with you with a bolt action, so you are consistently accurate from every shooting position, uh, kneeling, sitting, standing, uh, uh, strong side, weak side rest, which are using vertical supports like a tree in the, in the, in the woods. So you're consistently accurate to even 50 yards with all of those shooting positions with a 22 bolt action. And I then hand you a Ruger 1022 or a Marlin Model 70 or any good quality semi-automatic 22. It will take your shooting to a new level of skill and quality. If I start you with that semi-automatic, odds are you will never reach the level of proficiency that you're capable of. There are people that will disagree with me. That's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But if you want mine, this is it. Take that bolt action and become its master. And you will then be able to pick up any rifle in any caliber that's reasonable for your stature, frame, and experience level. So you might pick up a 7mm Magnum or a 300 Magnum, and the recoil might be too much for you, okay, if you haven't kind of built yourself into that. But with reality, standard center fires down. If you master a 22, single, uh, 22 uh, bolt action, you'll be able to shoot anything. And you'll be able to shoot at extended ranges with those. So if I make you very good with a 22 bolt action to 100 yards, and I give you a 3006, I guarantee you, by that time, a 300-yard shot on a white-tailed deer is not difficult. With a scoped rifle with a good solid resting position, it is easy. It is one of the easiest things that you'll ever do. In fact, I will tell you, in some ways, hitting a sporting clay at 100 yards with a 22 long rifle without a bench rest from a normal shooting position is harder than hitting the kill zone of a larger animal like a white-tailed deer with a 306 properly zeroed at 300 yards, unless it's really, really windy or some weird condition. It's actually quite easy in comparison. Uh, when I was learning to shoot in the military, you're shooting basically a 223, a 5.56 millimeter NATO round out of the M16. Hitting targets with iron sights that are about the size of, put your one hand where your waist is and the other hand on the top of your head. Leave your arms off. That was the silhouettes we were shooting at. 300 meters, iron sights. They were absolutely easy to hit once you mastered the weapon. Now, if you could do that with iron sights, what do you think you can do with something like a 3006 with a scope? If you master the techniques. But it all stems from mastery. I, I cannot stress that enough when people ask me about rifles. It's about being a master of the weapon. And if I want to make you the master of a weapon, I start you out with the master's tool. And once we learn to use the master's tool, then we can use any tool. All right? 
And if you want to think about it this way, there's a reason the rifleman's rifle is a Winchester Model 70 364 bolt action. It could just as easily be a really nice Model 700 Remington or a Ruger uh, bolt action or any of the quality bolt actions out there. It could be any of them. It could be a Weatherby. It really could. I know that history has made it the Winchester, and I'm not going to put the Winchester down. It's a great rifle. But you notice it's not a lever action. It's not a semi-auto. It's not a pump of any stripe. It's a bolt action. That is the master's tool. It is where I recommend that you start your quest for becoming a master of your rifle. One final thing before I go to the next question. Being a rifle master does not mean that you can go shoot in the Olympics. It does not mean that you're a better shot than me. You might be. What it means is that you have mastered that rifle to the maximum potential that you have in you as an individual. That you know the weapon intimately, where you know its feel, its touch, and how it performs in all situations. And you can consistently perform well with it at its intended ranges. For a 22, that is 100 yards and under. And I could sit back and make a YouTube video of me dropping 22 long rifles into a coffee can at 200 yards over and over and over again. And it would be really impressive for the YouTube crowd of people that are really, most of them, and don't take this wrong if you're on YouTube, but a lot of them out there are 16-year-old idiots. Because the guy gets on and does a review of his rifle and calls a magazine a clip, and 20 of them dogpile, you don't know what you're doing. And these are like all guys that play airsoft or whatever. And they might be really impressed by the fact that you can drop that round into that coffee can. But you know what that is? All that is is firing one shot, knowing where you're holding and watching the dirt when that dirt little flies up, adjusting and holding in the same spot over and over and over again. It just ain't that hard if the technique's there. You know, because that's within, you know, large enough target within a consistent level of performance for that type of weapon. But with a 22 is 100 yards. So if you can consistently hit things like sporting clays at 100 yards with a 22, I consider you a master of that rifle. That doesn't mean you can't become better and think about it like martial arts. You guys are black belt. I think in most martial arts it's a fourth degree or fourth dawn or second, I don't know what, maybe it's second degree, second dawn, whatever it is. They consider them a master, right? But then there's a guy that's been, you know, in that same art for ten more years, and he's a seventh Dan or whatever the hell they call it in their little scheme, right? Now, obviously, he's more proficient, but both of them are recognized as masters of their craft. But there are levels of mastery. So to get to that first level, start with a bolt action. Let's go on to the next question. And now, as they say, for some good news. This one comes to me from a person named Joshua. Um also known as Kilgore on our forum. And this is out of Little Rock, Arkansas, which is cool since I was just up in Arkansas. So I'm just going to read this uh, or some excerpts from it for you. This is from an article off of uh, Arkansas Online. Um, a jury in Woodruff County Circuit Court decided Monday evening that Bear Corp uh, Crop Science LP must pay more than $1 million in compensatory and punitive damages to Lenny Joel Kyle a rice farmer, for losses he sustained when Bear's experimental variety of genetically modified rice infiltrated the rice supply. So those of you that don't think there's any GMOs in Asia because they're all rice farmers, there you go. The jury awarded Kyle $532,643,000 in um, compulsory damages and $500,000 in punitive damages, so just about $1 million roughly. Uh, this is the third verdict against Bear Corp. Uh, crop science and rice lawsuits, but the first award of punitive damages. 
obviously were satisfied that the jury paid careful attention and understood the facts and decided that exemplary or punitive damages were warranted over the above uh, compensation. And we think that's significant. Punitive damages in Arkansas are not easy to obtain, said Chuck Banks' attorney for Kyle. Riceland Foods, the Sogert-based cooperative, was also named as a defendant in the case and accused of withholding information about contamination but was not found to have caused any of the damage. The Woodruff trial was the first Bear Rice lawsuit to be resolved in a state court. Last month, the federal jury in St. Louis awarded about $1.5 million to rice farmers in Arkansas and Mississippi. The farmers in Missouri were awarded $2 million in December. Three additional federal bellwether cases, met as test cases, are scheduled for later this year involving farmers uh, from Louisiana and Texas as well as a rice exporter. There are about 7,000 cases in multi-district litigation in federal court in St. Louis, said uh, Scott Perry, a Little Rock attorney and co-chairman of the Plaintiff's Executive Committee, which was appointed by Judge Catherine Perry of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri to lead the plaintiff's legal efforts. Bear Crop Science, a German corporation, there you go, uh, had been testing rice and been genetically modified to tolerate the company's Liberty Link herbicide. So basically, this is Roundup Ready rice, but instead of being ready for Roundup, it's ready for Liberty Link. So it's Liberty Link Ready rice. So, you know, we have Roundup Ready soy from Monsanto. This is Bear's version of a herbicide ready rice. Uh, so they're putting their crap in there. When traces of it were found in the U.S. rice supply in 2006, though the USDA said at the time the crop contamination rice variety posed no health or environmental risk. Well, I feel better. The rice had not yet been approved for consumption. Uh, Japan and the European Union immediately moved to restrict U.S. rice from crossing their borders when the contamination was announced in August of 2006, leading to a plunge in rice prices and a drop in U.S. rice exports. So, I think that Bear has damaged every rice grower in America. I think every rice grower in America should be able to sue Bear Crop Science because you, de- you depreciated the value of the rice with your stupidity. So what I'm saying is even a guy that was growing rice somewhere else that wasn't directly contaminated had his value of his crop damaged in 2006 because Bear screwed up the export market for everybody in the United States. Good job, Bear. Uh, Bear, Bear simply sat back and did nothing in hope genetically modified organism contamination would not surface, the complaint said. The jury found that Bear should have known its actions would result in damage, that it continued with such conduct with malice or reckless disregard of consequences, and that Bear intentionally pursued a course of conduct for the purpose of causing damage, according to documents filed with Woodruff County Court. I'll let you guys read the rest of the article yourself. I'll put a, a link up today uh, if you guys are interested in reading that. I think you should read the whole thing. There's some interesting things that come out of this. It's not just good news uh, that a GMO producer is getting smacked down for contaminating another crop. This is the first I've heard of it. Apparently it's the third case against Bear, and that's great. This is what I've always said, and this is how I would handle this as a legal matter. If I have a farm and I grow corn, and you move in and decide that you're going to run cattle. It is not my responsibility to fence your cattle out of my cornfield because I was already there. And you are the one with the cattle. My corn doesn't move, your cows move. So it's your responsibility to fence your cattle in. Should your cattle get into my cornfield because you didn't take steps to properly restrain them and damage my cornfield, you have to pay me damages. Any legal action uh, or any lawsuit that was taken that way, if those were indeed the facts, and the facts were obvious in the case, the person saying, you owe me for my corn, would always win. 
It's, it's so entrenched in, in agricultural concepts. Again, it goes back to Leviticus in the Bible, for God's sakes. That's how long these traditions have been uh, in, in place. So if, um, if you are uh, now bringing in a crop that cross-pollinates my crop, it's your responsibility to keep your crop's pollen out, not my responsibility to keep it out. So now I'm growing organic corn that's GMO-free, okay? And you go and plant next door to me corn that is genetically modified, and it cross-pollinates my corn, you're liable. And the provider of the seed is liable. Now, what I find interesting here, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm putting on disclaimer, opinion, right, not fact, going forward until I tell you I'm turning that off. It seems to me interesting that farmers are willing to say, bear infested my crop and sue them. I don't hear anybody doing that with Monsanto. And I think it's because Monsanto would immediately, if you said, you infected my crop, sue you for patent infringement. And the strong-arm tactics they've taken, I think today farmers are afraid of Monsanto. So they've been able to bully everybody out there. And uh, I would like to see now every grower that doesn't want Monsanto's or ConAgra or Bear or anybody's gene, and they can afford it, to have your crops tested. Have them tested to see if any GMO gene is in place. If so, immediately file a lawsuit and use these uh, cases as what's called legal precedent and say, hey, look, this has already been ruled on in a court of law now, that if you bring these things in and they invade my crop, that we have a real problem, and you're the one that have caused it, and I am due damages. I think maybe this is the way to stop Monsanto. Maybe the legal system can actually stand up and do what it's supposed to do. And that is when laws are being flagrantly violated, rectify that through the use of punitive damages. I think this is an outstanding way. I just don't know if it will get any legs underneath it, because it goes higher and higher into the court system. Monsanto has the money to buy a lot of their way through that crap. But, but that's what I see going on here. And I've I got to tell you, it sure as hell makes a lot of sense to me. And it's the first uh, justification of something I've been saying for years, years I've ever seen. Again, I'm still on the opinion mode here right now. I'm not giving you fact. This is my disclaimer again. Um, I also wonder, though, is this why Monsanto, above all, has fought so hard against labeling GMO crops GMO-free? See, I've always thought, and I learned this in uh, The Future of Food from uh, Jerry Garcia from uh, Grateful Dead. His wife did that great movie, The Future of Food. And, and what I got out of that movie was companies like Monsanto don't want to have food labeled GMO-free because as soon as they do that, then we can see, well, who ate GMOs and who didn't, and we can trace diseases and link them back to the GMOs. But I, I see it totally different now. Now it makes sense to me. Now it makes much more sense than that because people like Monsanto don't worry about crap like that. They get out of that problem when it, when it rises 20 years from now. They're worried about today. They don't think that far ahead when it comes to troubleshooting and damage control because they believe they're so arrogant their money will buy their problems off. But short term, short term, now I see why they don't want that. It's not just consumers revolting because most consumers won't care. Most consumers, I could put together a, a, a box of food, put a skull and crossbones on it, and call it sickness crisps. And most consumers will buy it and eat it anyway. They just don't care. 
So they're not worried about, you know, consumers that, you know, won't buy GMO soy-based product or GMO uh, corn-based product. Of course, the, the, the proposal isn't even that GMO crops be labeled as GMO. It's simply that GMO-free foods be allowed to be labeled as GMO-free. They don't even want that. Why? Think. Get to this one yourself if you can. Okay. But think about this lawsuit. This farmer just got a million dollars because his rice was infiltrated and damaged with a foreign gene that he didn't want there. But his case is only that he didn't want it there. But if he was selling his rice, it's certified GMO-free. And if that, that label is accredited value in our system, then any time any farmer's GMO-free crop was infiltrated, it's a concrete damage in value. It's a specific value damage that's been done. It would be like if I sold mink coats, and you came in and painted my mink coats with red paint, which some protesters have done, then the, the protester would be liable for the value of the mink coat. Right now, if my corn is infested with GMOs, Unless I'm selling it as GMO-free, it's hard for me to tangibly define the damage that's been done. The only thing that we have like that now are things like the Safe Seed Pledge, where the, where the, the owner is basically saying, but they can't put on the label GMO-free. It's illegal. Let me say this again. It is illegal in the United States of America, supposedly the freest land in the world, for me to grow corn in my backyard. Work my ass off to keep Monsanto's and everybody else's genes out of it. Have it genetically tested to prove that I am right. And then sell it with a GMO-free label on it. That is illegal. The minute that that becomes legal, these lawsuits go through the roof. So if I wanted to get politically active right now, and I really don't any more than I have to, that would be a place I'd put a lot of my effort right now. To simply legalize labeling items as GMO-free. And Monsanto's response and all the rest of these pricks' response to be, well, that might damage the value of everything else. You know what? Consumers, to me, have a right to know what they're consuming. Again, I don't even need the products to be labeled includes GMO. I don't need, I don't need a warning label like for cigarettes. This product has been shown to cause cancer. No shit, right? What I need is a label that, that the producer that guarantees no genetically modified organisms is simply allowed to display. And again, I want to say this, I want to drive, I'm out of opinion now, I'm back to fact. That is illegal in the United States of America today. You can't sell a, a, a gallon of milk with no genetically modified organisms on it. Certified organic doesn't even guarantee no GMOs. Because I can do everything that I'm required to do with the federal government to be certified organic and if GMO, GMO cross-pollination occurs, that doesn't ruin my organic certification because it's about how I handle the food, how I grow the food, what my inputs are, and what the Mother Nature does doesn't change whether it's organic or not. And since right now the legal system considers genetically modified foods as generally recognized as safe, that's the legal language they use, I can't say that I've been damaged. It's very hard anyway to say that I've been damaged. But if we get the legal right to display it, and that's why they fought it. 
I'm back to opinion. But I really believe that. Now, that's the real reason that these pricks have fought so hard to prevent people from labeling things as GMO-free. Let's see if I can come up with one more question, folks. This is one we need to figure out what to do and kind of work on together. This is a big one for me. Let's see if I can pull one more, though, before we uh, sign off today. Here's a nice, easy, and practical one to, uh, to end the show with today. Uh, it comes from a guy named Greg. And Greg says, Jack, it will only be a couple short months before we start harvesting from the garden. Like many, I'm hoping to be able to freeze some of our harvest. You mentioned a couple times that you steam blanch your vegetables to be frozen. Uh, I blanch in boiling water, but steam blanching sounds like it would be less messy. Can you describe the process? Also, what specialty items do you need to steam blanch? Steamer, steamer basket, etc. Okay, Greg, great question. Um, first of all, let me say this. I think steaming is much less messy. I really do. What do you need to steam blanch? Uh, a big metal uh, colander, like uh, you know, like a rinsing, like for uh, a colander, like for spaghetti. Big metal one of those, uh, big enough to go across the top of your pot. In the bottom of the water, you got boiling water, and you put the lid on the pot. You put your vegetables in the colander, stick them in there, put the lid on, and blanch it according to a blanching chart. And there's a lot of charts out there for blanching vegetables. Generally, you steam blanch longer than you boil blanch. So uh, that's a bare minimum. What I do, I went out to Kohl's, which is a department store here in Texas. I don't know uh, what states they're in and what states they're not in. But I purchased a little vegetable steamer with two baskets. So it, it blanches a lot because the basket stacked on top of each other. It's not very big. It's probably about 14 inches wide, uh, 14 inches long, maybe 16 inches long, and about 10 inches wide. So stores nice and easy. And um, you pour water in it. You set the blanch. You set the, the steaming time with a little minute counter, and when it's done, it beeps, and it's done. And you don't have to wait for it to heat up or anything. And I think we paid 30 bucks for that, and it's been wonderful for steam blanching, both for freezing and for things that need to be blanched before dehydrating. Uh, so that is really the recommendation that I would give you uh, is to go get one of those little steamers, assuming that you have the funds to do it, because it is – much more convenient to know that, okay, I need to blanch my green beans for three minutes. And I think that's right, folks. If it's wrong, uh, always check your blanch chart before you do it. But I just simply dial in three minutes and hit start. And at the end of those three minutes, I take those two um, plastic baskets off of that steamer, and I, I dump them into, you know, wherever I'm going to dump them, and then bag them up and freeze them. And what I've actually been doing with things like green beans when I flash freeze them, I get a great big cookie sheet with parchment paper. And after they're blanched, I spread them out in a single layer. I stick them into my deep freezer for about 20, 30 minutes till the outside is frozen. It looks with that kind of like ice glaze. And then I bag them up. And when you do that, they don't stick together. And it's, you can put a great big bag of green beans in the freezer, and it's easy to open it up and take out a couple handfuls, just like you do from the ones that come from the store, rather than having like a solid block of green beans where you have to de defrost the whole thing. That said... Uh, I will still continue to freeze some of my vegetables, but I am a huge proponent going into this year of dehydration. I've been playing around with it. I had a little kind of, you know, consumer-level dehydrator. I bought a nine-tray Excalibur dehydrator this winter. I've been playing around with it. Some of you have seen my YouTube videos where I dehydrated a bunch of frozen vegetables as part of the bucket storage project. I think dehydration is a much superior method to freezing. Uh, the food weighs less, it takes up less space, and it doesn't require climate control. I'm also, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that uh, Excalibur, or not Excalibur, uh, Shelf Reliance sent me a Harvest 72 uh, storage uh, rack. And it holds like, uh, God, it's uh, three rows of standard cans and then one row of kind of the larger fat cans, like a lot of the fruits come in, uh, and then one row of um, 
uh, number 10 cans, and it's a lot. It's like 400 total cans it holds. I'm thinking this year that part of using that rack system, what I'm going to do is look at getting phenolic-lined paint cans, which are FDA-approved for contact with food. Smaller cans that will fit in that rack system, dehydrate my vegetables, drop them into a phenolic-lined paint can, throw an O2 absorber in there, smack it with a rubber mallet, label it, and into the rack system it goes. And I think that is a much more efficient method than flash freezing. That doesn't mean freezing doesn't have a place and a purpose, and there's some really uh, good things about flash freezing your food, but it's more labor-intensive, and it requires more energy, and, of course, if the power goes off, the food defrosts, and then you have to use it quickly or you lose it. With dehydration, you get up to a 30-year storage life. So, again, I'm not putting down freezing. I'm just saying if you're going to be blanching things anyway, popping them into a dehydrator for a day may get you better results. Now, let me say there are a few things that I haven't been real pleased with their dehydration, uh, uh, the way they come back to life, so to speak, and that has been peas has been my big one. Peas never seem to get as soft as they should, or if you cook them long enough to get them soft enough, they seem to, I don't know, like get to that mushy state. So I've actually been more impressed with peas being deep fried. Now what I've really, or deep freeze, deep fried, deep freeze, deep fried peas, that might be good. Anyway, but uh, peas being frozen rather than dehydrated. That said, from uh, Harmony House, I purchased some dehydrated split peas. Now, these aren't the hard split peas like you get in the store that you have to soak like beans. These are just split and then dehydrated. I don't know if there's a machine that would split peas out of your garden. It might be too daggone labor-intensive, and I might just buy a good quantity of these things from um, uh, Harmony House. But those seem, because they're split in half, to rehydrate much quicker. And unlike the stuff you make split pea soup with, they get real kind of mushy. They don't seem to do that. They're, they're really good to throw in, like, trail soups and things like that. So longer answer, but uh, you kind of opened up a Pandora's box there. But the short answer, uh, steaming is much less messy than boiling for blanching. You have to do it a little bit longer. The way to go is go out and buy a, a, a steamer. Uh, that is designed for steaming vegetables uh, with an electronic timer on it, and use that, and I think you'll be much happier. And when you're doing, if you're doing two or three bags, it's not a big deal to boil or use a colander. If you're, you know, if you have a ton of green beans in your backyard and you're bringing them in at harvest at like 20, 30 pounds of beans a week for several weeks over duration, and you're trying to put all that up, what a pain in the ass that is to be boiling those uh, or to steam them with a colander to have something that's preset you can kind of get into a rotation with. I really think that's the way to go. It also would be the way to go if you're going to farmer's markets at harvest time and buying you know, large, or uh, produce auctions or anything like that and doing high-volume storage. All right, with that, I am going to wrap up. I do want to say one more thing today, though. I want to thank all of you that emailed me uh, while I was on vacation to check to see if we were safe. Uh, I had a lot of you guys do that. There had to be two dozen people. Uh, while I was in Arkansas, there was a series of tornadoes that broke out, and uh, not that far from where we were at, uh, up more close to, the, to Searcy County and uh, north of Little Rock and north Little Rock and those areas. Uh, there was actually, I think, uh, confirmed four tornadoes uh, in a storm that ran through Wednesday night. Of course, we got there Tuesday last week. Um, one was an EF1 confirmed, and the other one, I think, was an EF2. So that's a pretty substantial tornado. Um, several people were injured. One person lost their life. A lot of property damage occurred. What happened up at our bug-out location? 
absolutely nothing. We got a little bit of you know pea-sized hail. We got some wind and we got some rain, and everything's growing beautifully up there now from the rain. Um, I want to make sure that again I tell you there's a little bit of opinion here, some fact, but a definite reality behind this. When you buy land up in the mountains, not at the foothills, not at the bottom, up in the mountains, the potential for tornadic activity goes down. It's why I made the decision. It would be easier to do permaculture in a great big flat, lightly sloping field than up in the mountains at, you know, 1,200 feet elevation where I'm at. But if you look at a tornado touchdown map of Arkansas, all along through the central, central part of the state, you see very high densities of tornado touchdowns. As soon as you hit the Washita Mountains, uh, the Ozark Mountains, uh, the, the St. Francis Mountains, all the mountain ranges that, that go through uh, the, the, you know, the western portion of Arkansas, you watch those touchdown numbers just drop off to almost nothing. It's not to say it can't happen. I know somebody's going to email me, there was a tornado on the top of a mountain in Wyoming a few years. Yeah, and there was one. And it was a big deal because it wasn't supposed to be there. So that's part of why we made that decision. So if you're looking for your bug out land, my final thought is that's one good reason to consider mountain land. Now, the other thing is mountain land has a higher propensity for forest fire. So you have to kind of pick your battles with that. But one thing I don't recommend is a mobile home in Tornado Alley out in the middle of a big flat field. Uh, I think you're asking for it that way. Uh, and if you have that, then you better build a tornado shelter, keep a good eye on the, le- uh, the weather, and get down under one. And even with everything I've just said, one of the first things that we're putting in up in Arkansas when we finally move, along with some ponds, I'm bringing a guy with a dozer in and a track hoe, and I'm going to have him dig out uh, a basically a, a space for me to build what's going to be a root cellar slash tornado shelter because it still can happen, and it would be nice to have that safe place to go to. But we were completely fine. Thanks for asking. It was completely uneventful up there. We spent most of our time hiking, and I think we hiked about five to six miles a day over uh, a good solid four days and uh, wore the dog out. That's so much hiking we did. I enjoyed the vacation, came back energized. I hope today was a good show for you. Uh, one last thing. I hope you notice an audio quality improvement. I found a way uh, in the interim, I think, to make my auto- audio quality a lot better. Uh, we'll see how today's show comes out in its final rendition, but I think it will be better. I'm going to make a very uh, hard-to-make because it's kind of expensive investment in some really good quality audio equipment and uh, hopefully that'll have me rock solid with the audio going forward but until then I think today's show came out well this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough you can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter Get spent